Welcome back to Building Tomorrow, a podcast about tech, innovation, and the future. Today, we're discussing what social media companies should do when the idea of internet virality suddenly becomes literal. That viral post that your boomer uncle shared on Facebook back in March or April about how Anthony Fauci conspired with Bill Gates to invent COVID-19 so they could get rich off a vaccine. Uh, It's probably the same uncle who gets drunk at family reunions and starts yelling a lot about conspiracy theories. Um, Well, what should Facebook do about that post? I mean, on the one hand, they might have an obligation to remove disinformation about the virus, because in this case, disinformation can kill people. At the same time, removing posts simply because they are false and not because they're obscene or call for violence or whatever, well, that can get messy really quickly. Um, Sometimes truth can be in the eye of the beholder. It strikes people as a kind of censorship. So how should Facebook and really any social media company decide what content to remove? My guest today is my colleague at Cato, John Samples. And John was recently appointed to Facebook's Independent Oversight Board. It's the board that will take on the toughest content moderation cases. That means that John is going to be one of the voices in the room that will shape the future of Facebook's approach to free speech issues. And given that there are 2.6 billion Facebook users worldwide, that's an important role. And it's one I'm glad to see a committed civil libertarian take on. announcement that you are going to be part of Facebook's independent oversight board. Mm -hmm. It was in May. I mean, you Mm -hmm. obviously knew about it before the rest of the world. Um, But that's right in the middle of of the pandemic. Um, You know, how has the has the pandemic thrown the kind of plan for the rollout of the independent oversight board? Has it thrown a, you know, a wrench in the works at all? now, there's an interesting question here that I, I believe the, the uh, idea was before the pandemic hit, was that there was always going to be a lot of work, maybe most of the work done by uh, the oversight board was going to be done online. Um, you know, when we do have meetings, you become completely aware of the, the problems here because when it, or the t- just the time issue, right? Uh, it's often 6 a.m. or whatever uh, uh, here in the West Coast, and then it's 11 p.m. at night, and there's almost a whole day's difference and all of that. So there, there was always going to be these online challenges, but it was going to have to be that because people are spread throughout the world. I think there was going to be face-to-face, going to be face-to-face meetings a couple of times a year. So in some sense, um, things did not change, the, and I believe – Almost certainly, the uh, role, getting people up to speed, um, you know, learning your role and on processes. I bet all of that was going to be online, even if we hadn't had not all of it, but much of it. There would have been some uh, uh, some meeting face to face, but I suspect a lot of it still had been uh, the way we're doing it. Indeed. when you look at what they're doing, it, I don't think they can put that together in a month or two. It's a fairly complicated uh, kind of schooling, really, to learn the processes and what we're doing. Uh, it's pretty impressive if they did it in very short time, but I suspect uh, there was always going to be an online. Uh, so I suspect in the end that um, in terms of how fast we get to work, uh, the pandemic probably didn't matter. Uh, or probably won't matter much. It hasn't, it, in itself, I don't think it is delayed. Would be my guess. Hmm. Well, it's fitting, you know, the kind of online services uh, from you know internet provision itself to con- you know to the content providers hasn't really been disrupted by the pandemic. Um, it's the it's the stuff that we haven't digitized. It's the you know the, the the bits of the world that haven't been eaten by software to use Andreessen's phrase that mm-hmm. those are the, the parts that have struggled the most in response to the pandemic. So, well, um, there's another aspect to this because in our work so far, I think this is no great surprise, uh, but it reemphasized it for me, which is. You know, a crucial part of the success of this enterprise is going to be based 
unfortunately. I mean, I'm an intellectual, I'm an ideas guy, but a lot of it has to do with people and their relationship with one another. And and in some measure, the success of this will be based around the idea, how well can this group of people work together, particularly deliberate together? How well can they support free expression? That is a big Facebook value. Uh, when they disagree about other things, right? And I think uh, they can do that better if uh, they know each other better. And there's a, there's just, it's just like the seminars at Stanford. There's a face-to-face -face element that is irreplaceable. Now, we've, we've done actually pretty well with uh, some small group uh, discussions online. I thought that was actually a pretty good substitute. Uh, so I'm pretty confident that we're doing surprisingly well, but I'm wondering, you know, I, uh, how much, you know, I'm hopeful we'll get to see each other soon because I think that also has an additional element and will contribute to the deliberative element down the line. Yeah. Well, as you're talking about the, you know, deliberation, maybe I should back up a second and ask you, you know, for our listeners who aren't familiar with the uh, Facebook's Independent Oversight Board, mm -hmm. What's the purpose of the board? Uh, what are you being tasked to do? So uh, it's actually, I think, will be demanding and challenging, but it's pretty straightforward. Facebook uh, and perhaps at the end of the day, all social media do content moderation. They need to do that. And, and what content moderation means is that they uh, either remove things from the platform uh, or they, uh, in Facebook's case, you could say also the refusal to allow fake accounts is part of that. Uh, but there's something that has to be done to content. Sometimes it's removal. Sometimes it's just uh, making the audience smaller. Uh, and they were doing that by inside the company. They would have, they came up over time with their rules. They eventually published the rules, and so on. So they were doing it inside, and I think there was a decision uh, or a growing awareness and a decision that it was going to be difficult to do that internally, that it was uh, too much power for one company, it was, and that there was going to be a trust issue, that is, that people weren't, were expressing distrust and so on. So that led to thinking, well, how could we uh, deal with that? How could we gain legitimacy for these inevitable uh, decisions about content moderation. And by the way, let me just spend a second on that, particularly on the, maybe on the libertarian side, maybe other points of view might really think, well, why does there have to be content moderation? Why can't we just have no gatekeepers and whatever is on the platform is there? And the answer, I think, is it's a business. And if you let, uh, if you don't have the ability um, to remove some content, you're not going to do uh, the job for your shareholders or your owners as well as you could, because some people are going to be put off by what's online, or they might, it's often the, the phrase is, they, uh, users won't feel safe. They, they'll feel like uh, they're in an environment they don't want to be in. So it's the business part, really, that I think makes content moderation inevitable. Then you've got to make it legitimate. And that's where we come in. Facebook went to a lot of trouble, spent a lot of money to set up a trust to separate Facebook from the oversight board uh, and to have certain kinds of uh, qualities that would uh, create a genuine independence, a, a possibility for being for pe reasonable people to see the oversight board as separate from Facebook, its business interest, or whatever. And so our job is to initially deal with appeals from Facebook takedowns, uh, decisions about what uh, kind of expression is on Facebook, and to answer the question, um, Facebook believes this expression violates the rules, does it? And if, if it doesn't, if Facebook makes a mistake about a takedown, uh, they, the company has committed to making our decision binding. So when uh, something's taken down, we say it shouldn't have been, it'll go back up. 
there's also a couple of other things. Eventually, uh, decisions about leaving stuff up will be also uh, decided so that if something's left up that shouldn't have been, uh, we'll be able to take it down according to the Facebook community standards. And then if Facebook asks, asks us about policies, uh, we can give our opinions uh, to them. Uh, and we may do that also in some of the decisions. I'm not clear about that yet. We'll have to see how that works out. But generally, it's an idea that Facebook will ask and we will tell. And then they have a, those are not binding. Um, that is, the policy advice is not binding. But uh, I think they'll probably take it pretty seriously if they go to the trouble of asking. And that's it. Yeah. That's really it. So as you were talking, I was reminded of, a, of I think, a common, um, I think, complaint online uh, about uh, social media and, and the idea of content moderation in total in, 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 in total is, well, why can't there just be a First Amendment standard, right? Mm -hmm. And I think you were effectively responding to that, to that question there, uh, you know, that there's, there should be free, completely free internet speech, and therefore there should be no content moderation by Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's going, that line um, uh, plays well among libertarians mm -hmm. uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, I think it's often, though not always, well-intentioned. Mm -hmm. So how would you appeal specifically to a, a libertarian, you know, heavy internet user? They, they, they're very engaged in social media. They're, I don't mm -hmm. know, maybe they're Redd Redditors. They're, um, you know, very, very online people, VOPs, as I call them. Mm -hmm. um, how would you go about saying, look, this is actually consistent with libertarian principles for companies like Facebook to be content moderating? You know, I think uh, libertarians in this regard feel a tension that maybe others don't feel as strongly. Uh, and I also think they're uniquely placed to appreciate uh, uh, why there has to be content moderation. I mean, the tension is, uh, on the one hand, you, you know, we're obviously all committed to uh, the First Amendment, which involves the government and state action. But... I think we're committed beyond the government, too. We hold free speech and freedom of expression uh, to be a uh, value. We, we think it's a good thing, uh, along with many other kinds of liberty. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, probably more than almost everyone, <laughs> I've really come to believe, uh, we support uh, private property. We support property rights. And more than and that, manifest itself as we think it's generally the case, not always, but generally the case that the people who are best placed to um, make decisions about property, about business, about how a business should be run, are the board, the shareholders, and also the management, right? So on the one hand, the the businesses are not covered by the First Amendment in the United States, and many of these social media companies are in, incorporated in the United States. So there's that open question whether you have an option about uh, how far uh, you protect free speech. And on the other side, there is this question I mentioned before, which is, you know, I'm running this business. I'm trying. I'm really supposed to maximize value for my shareholders, and uh, I can't do that if uh, uh, everybody can say anything, anytime, anywhere on my platform. Uh, so the real question in that regard, so I think the libertarian, uh, you know, uh, strength there is to say, well, you know, because of the state action, we don't want, uh, the Constitution doesn't go everywhere. It's, a, it's about government. It's about uh, state actions. And given that, uh, it's important for businesses to have this kind of, because the, the system of uh, maximizing shareholder value works great in a free market context. Uh, so I, I think that can be seen. On the other hand, I do think the libertarian tendency is to say, yes, we accept that. We think in some ways um, we'd love to have a First Amendment standard, but we understand why morally it doesn't have to be that way and legally. But what we would want is that uh, speech that uh, 
to be as free as it can be, consistent with running the business, consistent with making meeting your obligations to your shareholders. And that's why I was very concerned last year that uh, I'm very happy when Facebook said that their values were what they were, but that the paramount value was voice or freedom of expression. So this is a tension that everyone has to face at the end of the day, insofar as these platforms are and social media are businesses. And uh, the way to resolve it is to have people run the businesses that have speeches as protected as it can be consistent with their obligations to their shareholders to make the business work. And I think that can be a long, long way. I think you can have uh, everything that is valuable that people want to say, however offensive, you know, it can be offensive. It can be people might not like it is what I, I mean there and so on. Um, but there have to be limits that the government doesn't have to to follow. And uh, that's written into the system and really has a lot to do with there being a private sector, actually, a private sphere in, in America that in ways that maybe I didn't realize when I first started this. But if you didn't, the First Amendment applied everywhere. You know, think about the Cato Auditorium. Uh, we would have to... Um, you know, um, anybody would have, you couldn't keep people off the Cato Auditorium, could you? You couldn't select, how could you select among question and answer people, and so on and so forth. Uh, so I think that there's, a there's certainly a tension, but the resolution is to help a company draw that line in such a way that speech is as broad as it can be, given the need to uh, have a business and have a market economy. I suppose there's another way to think of um, social media upholding a First Amendment standard. And, and rather than thinking about it as um, a, a policy guiding their own content moderation uh, uh, you know, system, thinking of it as, well, in our interactions with sovereign states, with, with governments, mm -hmm. um, having a kind of an expectation that they treat, you know, the platform with a first amendment standard, right? Like mm -hmm. I think most users don't want the government of, well, whether it's America or China mm -hmm. uh, telling Facebook how to content moderate their, their information. So I, I guess if you look at it at mm -hmm. a slightly, a little bit mm -hmm. different of an mm -hmm. angle, yes. there's a way in which we do want them to apply the first amendment in their interactions with, with governments. Oh, absolutely. What I haven't mentioned here is the other, I'm glad you mentioned that, the other aspect of this, which is that uh, the first, you know, it's not just users that have or have not a, a First Amendment right, though the, that's most people. So it's important. Uh, it's also, I think, the case has been made that these companies themselves have a First Amendment right. There's an editorial right. Think about the editorial rights that newspapers have that have been established by U.S. courts. Uh, there's an editorial First Amendment element here, freedom of the press, freedom of uh, media, in a sense, that is at uh, issue here. We don't want, in fact, that's, for me, the strongest uh, element in engaging uh, with the oversight board is it just strikes me that there's a great danger that down the line we're going to get regulate we would get regulations and from uh, the federal government probably that would be very intrusive uh, on the editorial the curation uh, the way these social media companies, large and small, run their companies, that you would get that kind of intrusion that I think also um, would be a First Amendment right. But I really don't, I mean, I think a company could vindicate that right if it came to that. But I really would rather not get there. I'd rather have a, a private kind of uh, institution. I mean, that's, that's the other libertarian element to this. We think private institutions uh, can do a lot of stuff that many people think they can't. 
And uh, I think here, the, it's a really, our choices in the next few years are going to be, can a private institution make this work? Uh, or are we gonna, are we gonna, everyone's going to conclude, well, you know, we've gotta have government, which we, I we really, I'm here to try to head that off before it happens. Um, it, it's uh, another thing that comes to mind. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure it's the kind of thing that's easy for me to say as someone who's, you know, I don't have any kind of relationship with the Facebook oversight board. Um, but one of the things I've found reassuring and I, in the last year, and it's something that, um, um, yeah, it's it's become more obvious over the past year for those in kind of tech policy, those who watch um, the the sector very closely. Uh, a standard answer that we give to folks who say, "Well, look, that might all be true. It might be true that this is private property, and you know, Facebook has shareholders that are uh, obliged to." you know, to think about it's a business, it's not the government, is to say, well, they'll often say, well, it's so large that it is as if it is a government. It is as if it is a monopoly. Therefore, we should treat it like an extension of the government. And that can lead to calls for the kind of, on the extreme end, the nationalization of the internet, of social media, and even on the less extreme end, just saying, well, that's why it's okay to regulate speech and content moderation on social media even though we wouldn't want that in other areas. and But our natural response to that as um, people who respect property rights and um, are concerned about, you know, have free speech concerns is to say, well, look, there's a right to exit. So mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. are alternatives to Facebook. There are competitors. And if what Facebook, if you don't like what Facebook's doing, take your business elsewhere. And so I have found that encouraging over the last year um, that it, it, Facebook is still a very large, very successful uh, corporate, you know, global corporation, one of the, the largest, and most successful in the world, but it has shown it, it has uh, their uh, feet of clay might be a strong way of putting it, mm-hmm. but uh, it, it's it's shown that there's competition that people mm-hmm. are exiting dominant tech, uh, social media platforms. They're leaving Twitter for Parler. They're leaving Facebook mm-hmm. for alternatives. Uh, Facebook it lost it, it had its uh, TikTok clone Lasso that mm-hmm. just got. Buried. Lasso, they shut down just, I think, a week or two ago. Mm -hmm. Um, Just couldn't compete. Largest, one of the largest social media companies in the world got beat by, beat by TikTok. So, um, but that actually should be encouraging. I mean, Mm -hmm. the the extent to which if Facebook messes up, if Facebook Mm -hmm. is doing a bad job, um, people will leave. People already have left to some extent. I mean, there, there have been consequences for Facebook's, um, mistakes in the past. People, there's, there's a lack of institutional trust, which they're trying to regain through this board. Mm-hmm. Um, and the market is punishing them for that. So and I actually find that encouraging. I, I probably wouldn't if I was on the board or a big shareholder <laughs> of Facebook, but I find it encouraging as an individual internet consumer. What, what do you think, John? That's right. I mean, the, of course, here uh, we're all in, uh, in sort of a different set of issues in part, which is the antitrust issue, the uh, dominance, market dominance, and all of that. But I would come back to the free speech uh, or the speech issue in the following sense. Um, well, what is it that uh, sort of breaking up or antitrust can do for you on that front end? And I think the problem is that the actual reality of this policy discussion is in terms of uh, Really, it's giving leverage to government regulators, to really ultimately to members of Congress over Facebook or other law. Google too is in this discussion, um, and it, it, it's a leverage that could be used to. This is my concern, totally. What uh, in turn, trying to avoid uh, bad outcomes? Uh, our study of the Federal Communications Commission, I think, uh, that we published last. Uh, early this year, last year, uh, is in fact shows many of the problems with uh, uh, having government having that kind of leverage, right? It, it, it's uh, And then you add to it uh, what we've seen just uh, right at the end of May, I guess, the uh, executive order from President uh, Trump, which had been coming for a while. Uh, and he speaks directly there of he tries to redefine these companies not as private uh, 
forms or private entities or private companies, but rather as the modern public square. And of course, the modern public square is, is uh, covered by uh, the public forums doctrine, by the First Amendment, and so on. Uh, but uh, in the, that, e that executive order, it was uh, you could see just the notions of leverage over what appears, over the curation decisions, over the business decisions and people who own these platforms. Um, I think there is a separate antitrust issue, but I think you rapidly get moving down these uh, pathways toward leverage, toward government. You know, the thing is, the big background for me, uh, and I should say everything I have said today uh, is really my opinion. I much, you know, I would be wary in general to say this is oversight board, and I haven't talked to my colleagues. I don't know if they share this opinion or not. Uh, but it, it just seems to me that the big issue is uh, in 2016 and maybe a little before it became apparent that these social media companies were very important uh, to political discussion and especially discussion around elections, to mobilizing voters, to getting out the vote and persuading voters to some degree. And anytime that happens, um, you know, elected officials are going to perk up because uh, they're aware that uh, their fate, uh, they're very concerned about how these uh, platforms or any platform, they were very concerned about television in the 19, they began in 1960s and particularly 1968. And I see 2016 in many ways as the, um, 2000, is the 1968 for social media. It's everyone gets interested because, you know, this can affect elections and, in that context, when you're thinking of leverage, whether it comes from direct or some kind of other argument about policy, again, I'm wary. I, that's the uh, liberal element. The liberal element is you don't want government deciding these questions about what speech can be heard directly or indirectly. Now, uh, one of the, the challenges that has faced social media companies, including Facebook, including Twitter, um, has and it's been interesting to see them now. I think all of them have started to roll out. They've been deliberating on how they should change their policies over the last year or two. Mm -hmm. And now in 2020, we're seeing them actually actually do it. Mm -hmm. um, one of these things was uh, I think all of the uh, big companies have tried to take on COVID-19 pandemic disinformation mm -hmm. um, by flagging uh, this tweet may or may not be, you know, accurate information about COVID-19. Mm -hmm. Be aware. Mm -hmm. Here's a reputable source that you can double check this tweet. I think Facebook's been involved in that somewhat as well. Um it's also shown up in, uh, I think, Twitter most prominently. I'm not sure where Facebook's at at this point in this mm -hmm. regard, but Twitter has also taken on Donald Trump's Twitter account and flagged some of his tweets. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. been a very controversial thing, uh, whether or not, you know, you, you can, whether or not a, an elected public official should, uh, whether, whether or not they're telling the truth, uh, do they, do, do, um, media companies have a responsibility to post it because it's in the public interest, whether or not it's true that there's like a special carve out for public figures. And Twitter has decided to flag some of Trump's tweets. Mm -hmm. So th that's kind of a new thing. That's a, that's really picked up here in 2020. Um, do you feel like, and, and this is not just a Facebook question, it's kind mm -hmm. of social media in general. Do you think they've done enough or too much in regards to you know disinformation, whether political or medical, I suppose. Mm -hmm. uh, and what what kind of grade would you give uh, these efforts thus far? Well, you know, the issue here is uh, it's entirely possible that later this year I will find myself on a panel trying to judge Facebook about these these matters. Uh, and I would say for a couple, and in general, I think particularly with regard to Facebook, I would say I'm going to uh, pull back from saying anything def definite there. I think uh, there's a lot on the record there. 
about that and people can find that uh, for sure. And the second thing I would say uh, that goes beyond just a general recusal that I think is a good idea, but because of my position is, uh, you know, I, it's become more apparent to me that judging any of it, that in, for anyone, anywhere, judging these kinds of matters really requires uh, 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 indications about details and circumstances that uh, in particular cases with regard to this, I, I simply don't know that. I don't know enough about those. And so quite, if, if I were on this board, I think uh, I, I'm knowing what I know, I think I should be a little wary about making judgments because I don't know those circumstances. What I would say is I think uh, the, the companies are thinking about this uh, in terms of very, uh, I'd say, typical terms for free speech, right? Remember John Stuart Mill and On Liberty, and, and Mill announces the only, uh, and, and defends the idea that the only uh, grounds for restricting someone's liberty is because of harm done to others. And it strikes me that these kinds of uh, uh, arguments about what we've been going through for all of these companies or for anyone who is interested in um, freedom of speech and importance of freedom of speech in a pandemic are going to be thinking about the Mills harm principle and what that might mean. Uh, the other aspect I would say, and, and here I'll uh, say, of course, this has come down on Twitter. Um, uh, and it's been a Twitter issue is, again, I would point to the, the interaction of political officials and these social media companies. Uh, it can be a, quite apart from everything else. It's just a very difficult situation for people uh, trying to run these companies. And uh, again, uh, politicians are highly concerned about what appears, how they appear. And um, I think what we want is, uh, you know, as people living in a liberal culture, a culture that respects ideas like free speech and freedom of opinion and free conscience, you know, is um, we want that separation. Uh, and I just think the I would say, without giving anyone a grade, the this whole year has shown the challenges, uh, and to that extent, if a something like the oversight board, forget Facebook, imagine there's some kind of institution that one of these other companies comes up with that can work. Um, it's a real, you know, it's, it, it's a real good thing. It's, it, yeah. it, it, it would be something that would solve some of these, uh, these issues that I, I, I think we've seen in, across the board here this year. And, uh, and you can see why uh, people running the companies would like to have someone who would uh, have a legitimate uh, role to play and, and, and have a really get people's agreement to their judgments because it's just, you gotta, uh, getting caught in our American politics or politics in many other countries is, uh, is a tough thing right now for everybody. And um, I, I uh, I think that's where the institution building comes in. Well, I can imagine, um, I mean, actually the, thinking about the, you know, I asked, asked you about grading or whatever, but mm -hmm. that um, you can imagine as these institutions grow and become settled, and, and that includes the, the oversight board, mm -hmm. as it becomes uh, a, a more robust and mature entity, you can you can imagine essentially a whole apparatus of other institutions that act, you know, that attempt to explain the decisions that the oversight board is making, to interpret them, to uh, even push them in certain directions. I, I've been thinking here of the ways in which uh, uh, in in like university education there mm -hmm. are. It, when it comes to university free speech issues, there's a whole network of nonprofits who who 
look at universities and how they handle the speech rights of their faculty and their students and literally grade them. Like you're the grade for uh, Purdue University is a B minus and that's up from a C plus last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm thinking here the like the foundation for individual rights and in education, groups like that. And you can imagine in the future uh, institutions building out that will rate the decisions that the Facebook oversight board, you know, and depending on mm-hmm. the priors of the group, doing the grading or the rating, mm-hmm. I mean, they'll get very different results. But that's that's actually the sign of a maturing system, maturing set of institutions. So I that could be something. That's absolutely. Uh, I thought about this before all this started. I mean, I, I think one crucial role for what you've just been talking about, let's say an institution that so one of the major social media or in general social media is just to keep track of where we are. We tend to go in general in American politics from one uh, blow up to the other, right? And so that something, uh, the real things that that happened two or three months ago seem like they happened decades ago, or they quickly get forgotten. And you suddenly say to yourself, do you remember that? We were all over each other in February about that. One role that play in what this kind of institution is to keep track of everything that's happened and how and give you an overall picture of how things are developing. It's certainly true of the oversight board or I suspect any institution like it is that they're going to want to their their great advantage possibility is to give uh, consistency to decisions. They can so yeah. the rules become more consistent. Now if external, you know, more speech is the issue. If if that's not happening it's even possible that uh, a board itself might not notice that there were inconsistencies in its uh, handling. And part of, you know, the Supreme Court, a part of what law reviews do is show some of the implications that the justice m- might not have thought about in some of their decisions and so on. Um, I do hope that the thing, everything works well enough that these kinds of issues, these institutions of accountability rise up and make the whole process work better. If those things happen, we will have gotten well down the road toward a functioning system. There's an interesting example. It's a bit obscure as a matter of of jurisprudence and kind of legal history. But um, most folks aren't aware of this. But in the 19th century, the overwhelming majority of what we would recognize as jurisprudence. I mean, there, there obviously was a Supreme Court back then. There were federal courts and state courts. Mm-hmm. But a lot of everyday law was actually decided in alternative court systems, uh, the most prominent of which was uh, ecclesiastical courts. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of, you know, just Protestants and uh, in the 19th century America, they didn't – there's injunctions in the Bible not to take a fellow Christian to court. And they took those pretty seriously. Uh, and so they would go to their church leaders and say, hey, we've got this disagreement over who paid for what. And uh, we want you to sort it because we don't, you know, uh, we're not going to take this to the court system. And so over time, there grew up this whole system of ecclesiastical courts in America, um, imitating courts in other parts of the world that uh, would rule on issues of, uh, you know, basically torts, civil liability, would rule on inheritance disagreements, you know, who, who gets the money from the estate, mm-hmm. on even on issues like divorce and whatnot. So we had this whole separate, spontaneously organized, grassroots generated system of jurisprudence that had to evolve and grow over time. And it, it eventually it got absorbed back into the, you know, the... The, the standard secular uh, uh, legal system. Mm-hmm. But uh, in a sense, I kind of see that's what's happening here with like the Facebook oversight board. They're, they're, they're as the, as these uh, systems have grown and content moderation is hard, you know, at, content moderation at scale is hard mm-hmm. and they're having to develop their own kind of informal court system. It's not the same as a, as a legal court, but it, it, it it's over time, it, they're, they're generating this kind of alternative legal system uh, that has different standards than the formal legal system, right? There is not a First Amendment requirement in the mm-hmm. same way there would be in a formal legal system, mm-hmm. but nor should there be. Uh, and we're, we're see, it's very cool as someone observing, we're seeing kind of, kind of 
legal history in the making as these alternative jurisprudential systems are are generated, grow, mature, and develop into these uh, robust institutions. And it's I, it's neat seeing you being part of that, John. So, oh, know. I'm I'm very happy to be part of it. I think there are two ways, for, two broad ways forward, actually. And I appreciate your comments. I, I we don't really know enough about these kinds of judicial institutions that aren't official and legal and and coercive. Ultimately, uh, I would I think that's Great to know more about that. The two ways forward, though, are one is that uh, for whatever reason, you get a more centralized oversight system. So the trust uh, for the OSB is set up in such a way that other companies uh, can join it if they want to. Uh, They can make use of the services, as it were. Uh, And then the question is, will they want to? And all of those questions. so that's a model that you would get uh, going one direction. And, and libertarians like the American Supreme Court, I think, uh, but there's also dispersed power and spontaneous order, as you said. Uh, so the other possibility is that uh, uh, you get a variety of different kinds of institutions. And indeed, that's what you have now, right? We have an oversight board, but we also have content moderators that themselves deal with the outside world as well as the content moderation decisions. We have smaller companies in which uh, one or two people deal with their content moderation. We have diversity at this point. We have other things, technological coming online that I've heard about that will make other kinds of institutions. I think in that model where you have a lot of, uh, call it a kind of strong federalism or a very decentralized content moderation system. The role of something like Facebook's oversight board is to uh, learn stuff as we go through time and that stuff gets diffused. And that's also in a federalist uh, governance system that it, maybe it's w- how the lines are drawn around some issues about that limit speech uh, or don't limit speech. Um, maybe it's other things that, and lessons that are learned. Even though Facebook is large uh, and uh, OECD will be dealing with a, a large number of issues, there still can be lessons, I think, that will be important because other companies may wish to have different kinds of content moderation that draw the lines differently, that have different institutions that are accountable to different people in different ways. My prejudice uh, is for, by going in, is for uh, letting a thousand flowers bloom. And maybe that, although I always use, have you ever noticed, use that phrase? Uh, it's mouse, right? It's mouse a tongue. And, the, you know, yeah. that general theory is that he, <laughs> he let a thousand flowers bloom to clip them. So the people who... <laughs> <laughs> the people who spoke out ended up dead, right? Or, yeah, or in jail. Right. So it's not it's actually, that's not my wish at all. About the, yeah. my, my, my wish is that you have a lot of diversity, try lots of stuff. It's the hayaking thing, right? You go out yeah. there and uh, there is spontaneous orders developed that are different from, uh, not everyone has to be like the oversight board, but it also could be that down the line for a variety of reasons I don't see right now, uh, companies will come to the trust and say, you know, this work is working pretty well. We think it's better to go with you than to try to do our own thing. We think uh, we want to sign on to your rules because they've worked or they've got general legitimacy. I don't know what the reasoning will be, but I do know my own starting prejudices for diversity and uh, not unitary system. But we'll see. Uh, yeah. It's most important is that it be it be not uh, come out of Washington or a state capital yeah. too, for that matter. That's very true. Well, and that would lend legitimacy. I mean, as um, I mean, as you have more, uh, if you got that kind of buy-in someday from another, you know, outfit other than Facebook, well, it it, it only enhances the the authority and legitimacy of the uh, of the oversight board. I mean, because you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily a reasonable suspicion, but people are going to be suspicious. Uh, that because Facebook set up this independent oversight board that might not truly be independent and, and so on. And, um, you know, having more buy-in down the line would, would mitigate that. 
Um, or well, and even if they don't buy into your specific to this oversight board, if they just say this is working for Facebook, let's have our own version of that. It'll be independent. It'll be set up along similar lines. Have pretty similar structures. Pretty similar, um, you know, uh, uh, basic priors. Uh, that itself, I think, it, it would be a success. So let me just speak to that for a second, and I, I and I think I can can comment on this. The question of independence uh, that you mentioned, I, I, I think I would say to people listening to this, uh, what I've seen so far in my fellow uh, members of the oversight board is far from the question, what does Facebook want us to do or whatever, or a dependence on Facebook, just the contrary. What I've seen is people, an incipient pride uh, uh, on being independent of Facebook among members of the board and a sense that our job is our role here, which is this is a crucial issue, a professional role definition, right? And I've seen in the early stages a sense that we're here to be independent. That's what we offer to the Facebook and to the world, and it's our job. Um, and I feel good about that. And I think that's what, in the end of the day, what everybody wants. But I do think it's also what the uh, members are Starting out, they're expecting it from themselves and from uh, the board. So um, that's good. I feel good about yeah. that. That's encouraging to hear. No, I do, I do got I got to tell you that if you when I googled John Samples Facebook board, mm -hmm. uh, an ad popped up <laughs> from some organization called Accountable Tech which yes. was completely non-transparent. There was no yes. accountability for who was funding this thing. But it told me to quote Tell John Samples, don't be complicit. John Samples and the Facebook Oversight Board were supposed to tackle vital content issues, but the board has been reduced to a PR prop as Facebook profits off hate and subverts democracy. <laughs> so well, they told me to tell you, John. So I, yeah. I, I've told you. Um, but ha have, have, you, have you seen an uptick in angry emails coming your way since the announcement? You know, I just have to say, the, I was on Facebook and it's very, it's a striking moment. You know, I'm a fairly obscure individual that just worked away at the Cato Institute. And you're going through Facebook and suddenly an ad pops up in your timeline that is, has your name in it. It's directed to you. <laughs> it's like, what have I got myself into here? Uh, but, but I think what's missing here is, uh, you know, people, uh, first of all, I was sort of like, you can't say anything, Samples. You, you favor uh, critical speech. These people are doing it. Yeah, they're sure they have a right to it. Uh, and uh, I, I think the fact that they were willing to spend money on it tells me that we should pause and consider what they say. The real issue here was, you know, we haven't, they've got us failing and we haven't failed because we haven't done anything. We're trying to get ready to hear cases this, and we are making good progress to hear cases this fall. So they're judging us unfairly, I think, in the sense that, uh, you know, we have to do something before you can decide that we have failed. If, if you want to impose on, that they were imposing on us this idea that you're supposed to be doing all of this and that right now. But it was never the case that uh, that was part of what we signed on to do, the way the institution was defined and so on. So I think it's a bit of an unfair judgment. Uh, and what I would reply to them is to say, that's it's unfair at this point. We're getting ready to go. and we're, But from what I know of my colleagues is they, they want what you want, which is they want an independent board that will uh, give us some legitimate and uh, trustworthy content moderation. So uh, that would be my response. Uh, and um, we'll see how, what others like. I do not, you know, I have not gotten any. Uh, I, I, I don't, uh, at Cato, my colleagues, and maybe you too, maybe you're like this too. A lot of my colleagues would get more hate mail than I did. And I always wondered what I was failing. Was I like too... <laughs> Did I not make the case very well, or was I, I, I not? People just weren't listening to me. Was it a failure that I didn't get these kind of ugly emails from people, or, or was it? Uh, so at some point I stopped worrying. But it, I do 
I think it's sort of a general thing. I don't get it. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think they just auto-filled like, oh, you searched for a board name, you know, uh, Facebook board and you searched for John Sable, so we'll pop his name in there, you know. Um, Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure it was automated, but uh, no, I, I, I'm, I'm with you in that category. I don't, I don't get many hate, much hate mail, and um, in fact, I was, I, I'm always vaguely insulted that on, like on Twitter, you know, when when people would do the like anti-Semitic, like if you say something um, mm. that is, I, I, there was this phase like two mm-hmm. years ago on mm-hmm. on Twitter where people oh. were making anti-Semitic attacks on journalists, and so the journalists would preempt it by putting the the parenthetical three parentheticals on each side of their name. And, uh, you know, no one ever accused me of being a shill for the, the Rothschilds or something. And so I was, I was, I was like, am I not being, you know, fighting hate hard, hard enough? So yeah. you and me, John, both, you know, um, <laughs> <in that regard. laughs> I wonder about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't, uh, at the same time, I mean, I think this will be an interesting thing for me down the line. I'm sh- the the decisions are tough ones, and I hope yeah. people keep that. They're going to be controversial no matter what, right? And so the controversy will lead to some. Uh, so it will will be the, those of us who said talked about offensive speech and tough speech and all of that. People like me, for example, uh, are going to have to live out our faith. I think that. Because there could be hard things said about all of us, about our effort. And, you know, I've always, members of Congress would always say, you know, they didn't like ads or negative ads because it was untrue and so on. Well, you know, there may be untrue things said about me down the line. And I'm just, uh, we'll we'll return to this, Paul. And if I cave, I I hope you're going to attack me for giving up my principles. Uh, If I, if I complain about offensive speech or whatever, a call for a limit on advertising or something like that, I hope you'll attack yeah. me. I'll deserve it. <laughs> That's right. Well, I'm not going to hold my breath, but uh, yes. Well, you heard John say it. He wants us at Building Tomorrow to help keep him accountable to the principles that all who value civil liberties share. We'll check back in with him next year and see how it's gone. Let me also say why I have you with me. Be sure to go check out libertarianism.org's newly redesigned website. It's not only a fresh coat of paint, though it does look snazzy, it also allows us to do some cool things, connecting topics with each other and highlighting content that is both relevant and incisive. And as usual, till next time, be well. This episode of Building Tomorrow was produced by Landry Ayers for Libertarianism.org. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, check out our online encyclopedia or subscribe to one of our half-dozen podcasts. Mm-hmm.